0: I'm Carol Speakerman, and this is Speakerman Speaks Retail, presented by Market Scale. Hi, this is Carol, and welcome to Episode 6 of Speakerman Speaks Retail, where we navigate retail from now to next through my latest retail trajectories and interviews with industry experts who are charting the course. Now, today, I'm going to be talking to one of those experts, because right now, the conversation has been so focused on who's going to make it and who's on the retail ropes. But if the supply chain's broken, none of it even matters, because products just don't make it to market. So that's our focus for today, and that's why I wanted to invite today's guest to join us for this Voices of Retail Next interview. Now Lynn Spruegel is the founder and CEO of Abuzz Global. It's an advisory firm that pulls all those supply chain nuts and bolts together by providing expensive strategic planning resources and cross-functional supply chain training to retailers manufacturers and other retail stakeholders now lynn is a self-described builder and i can tell you she definitely walks the talk because She has spent her career building strong supply chain links and executive roles with retailers like JCPenney and more recently Academy Sports, where she took on a six-year stint in Hong Kong to build out a comprehensive sourcing structure and multi-country quality assurance network. And while she was there, she grabbed a doctorate of business administration and supply chain from the City University of Hong Kong. Lynn is super active in the supply chain community as a speaker and thought leader, and she serves as a committee vice chair for the Hong Kong American Chamber of Commerce and as a board member of the America's Apparel Producers Network, and she's an advisor to universities and others on all things supply chain. So bottom line, this lady knows her supply chain stuff, and I'm just thrilled to have her here with us today. So, we're going to take full advantage of her smarts to talk about some of the seismic shifts that are happening in the supply chain. Now, many of these were cranking up long before the corona crisis. But as always, we're going to start, uh, we're going to track sort of the before and after scenarios um, on a number of fronts. And Lynn is going to give us her thoughts on where things go from here and also some great advice on best practices. So, with that, it's my pleasure to welcome you, Lynn, to our discussion today.
1: Thank you very much, Carol. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, thank you for coming and, and uh, making time for it today. Um, I think it's really great to, to talk about the supply chain. I don't think it gets talked about enough with all these other shiny objects around. But I know that you're really passionate about taking that more holistic and multidisciplinary approach to supply chain strategy. So why do you think it's important to look at the big picture? And, you know, what do you gain from taking that perspective rather than just uh, keeping everything in silos.
1: Well, thank you again, Carol, for the opportunity to, uh, as you say, discuss one of my passions, uh, the retail global supply chain. Um, When we traditionally look at at retail stores or even omni-channel options today, one may focus just on the product and how it sells and consumer behavior. But there is a whole nother world behind these retail channels that enable the stores to be or the e-commerce to be successful. And it's really that product supply chain. So to just kind of start with a brief definition, um, it's systemic, uh, strategic, internal and external coordination of that traditional business functions, which is the internal inside a company. So it'd be buying, planning, global sourcing, finance, logistics, the distribution centers, and across other businesses within the supply chain uh, to improve that long-term performance of, of all companies in the supply chain. So as we look at these external businesses, those, if we look at an apparel supply chain from farm to shelf, uh, those links in the chain include the cotton farmer, the yarn spinner, knit and woven mills, uh, garment factories to cut the fabric and sew the garment, uh, packing the containers, uh, delivery to the origin port, ocean carriers, uh, once the goods get to the U.S., clearing U.S. customs, trucking to a D.C., received into a D.C., put away, picked, repacked, Uh, And trucked out the stores, and then stocking the store shelf itself. So that is all of the apparel ecosystem. It's a it's a mouthful. (laughs) That's pretty
0: complex, yeah.
1: Very complex. Um, And supply chains are. I mean, not only apparel, but footwear, consumer goods, toilet paper. I mean, you would have that type of a supply chain throughout. Uh, One of the reasons that this multidisciplinary understanding is so important. Um, of the functions of each link of that supply chain is how it affects others downstream and upstream. So if we look at just global sourcing for a minute, global sourcing is where you really coordinate the raw material procurement, production management, some of the designs, um, the technologies and suppliers worldwide to bring it into um, the stores. And as many brands are moving to a more sustainable and and, um, circular economy, sustainable product, it's very important, should this garment be designated as a circular product, for that designer to find and know biodegradable yarns um, and back in that design stage. And another reason for this multidisciplinary understanding is really a good understanding of the seasonal time and action calendar deadlines by department. And you know, I think, as we look at um, you know looking forward, we may not go by seasons anymore. there There are brands out there that have dumped the calendar. but meantime those companies that still operate by a calendar, you know if the product developer doesn't understand the impact of a late pre-production sample approval, well then the production starts late and might be missed by the factory. Um, and therefore creating a late shipment, which doesn't arrive uh, in the stores in time into the DC to get out to the stores for the planogram sets. So therefore, it's very strategic for all links in that ecosystem, internal and external, uh, to understand why there are deadlines and why they're important to the whole chain. So I think this is a big gap in the industry and a gap that really requires a dire need for cross-functional training.
0: Why? Well, so it sounds like you're, you're saying, you know, they every stakeholder needs to have that context, and they need to un- understand the purpose um, before they can really do their jobs effectively.
1: Correct. That is correct.
0: Okay, wow, that makes a lot of sense. So I know you you talk about the shifts that are happening in the supply chain. And as complex as the supply chain is, which you outlined just a minute ago, I mean, so many moving parts. Can you break it down for us? Like what are the main shifts that you're seeing overall?
1: Yes, I recently moved uh, back to the US in December uh, 2019 after living and working in Hong Kong for for six years. And during that time, um, I was able to uh, work on my doctorate, as you mentioned. And the reason I really wanted to work on it was to study these shift disruptions, transforming uh, the apparel global sourcing supply chain or any supply chains. But for my study survey of industry professionals, and this was prior to COVID-19, there were three key supply chain shift themes. The first one was regulatory. So at that time we were seeing the US-China trade uh, tariff, uh, additional tariff impact uh, to that and pulling the U.S. pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, the TTP, uh, TPP and migration of sourcing. So moving from country to country, kind of like a sourcing caravan. That was the first shift. The second was supply chain design type and a business model. So if we look at supply chain designs today, yes, they're the long lead time supply chains, but we're starting to see more Uh, Personalization and customization, and that really has to do with addressing the the consumer behavior uh, and their needs and wants, and I'll talk a little bit about more of that later. And the third is technology shifts. You know, if, if we look at the industry today, in some areas the industry has really developed, but in other areas we're still working on Excel spreadsheets. So in looking at these shifts, I really looked at were they traditional or emerging? And then what was the impact of time? Was it immediate? Um, was it one to three years or was it four to four to six years? And then mitigation level, how could you mitigate those? Was it unmitigatable? Uh, was it controllable? Um, or was it influenceable? And so it was really interesting to see, um, you know, the, the results of that. So, you know, as we, as we look forward at, at post COVID-19, um, these shifts will continue, but we'll see an acceleration of those trends.
0: So as other retailers right now try to differentiate through private branding, which is more important than ever before as these national brands become pretty much ubiquitous, um, what advice do you have for them as they, you know, as, they get, as they stay in this brand creation business and as they ramp it up and as some retailers go into it for the first time? I'm, I mean, what are the gaps and the mistakes that you've seen over and over in your career?
1: Yeah, I look back to my um, JCPenney days, and I call it the JCPenney University, a private brand. Uh, because <laughs> you you look at St. John's Bay, Worthington, just to name a few, uh, I mean, they were really recognized as national brands. And when you look at the the organizational structure, the marketing behind those brands to build that brand equity, Um, that is one of the things I see today is a shift of business models and really continuing to build that brand equity and private brands so you have to know your target customer interact with them you know maybe narrow your brand offering become known for something and then use brand ambassadors influencers and your social media uh, to blast out your brand to your target customer and you'll build these great brands but don't forget to tell the story behind them um, and the second thing I would say is the shift of technology. And there are now end-to-end supply chain software programs that begin with transforming trend shopping to design, to technical design, order placement, uh, work in process, shipping, logistics. And the, while previously these companies were really good at what I call the fulfillment end of the supply chain, the back end, now there's really been an emphasis uh, today on the development supply chain. And so by integrating, fully integrating your external and and, uh, internal stakeholders, it will really give your company a chance for speed to market, uh, transparency, more visibility to every link uh, and step in the supply chain.
0: What have you learned from, from meeting all of those stakeholders and working so close to the business and across so many different aspects of it? And what do you wish that other people knew?
1: Well, wow. first of all, um, I feel very blessed to have had exposure to, to many of these aspects of the real retail supply chain. And as I say, it's really a passion to understand um, as much as possible each one of them. Um, but I worked for a distribution manager once that above his door, he had a sign that said, go look. And it was really go look out in that distribution center and understand what everyone's doing. You may not do it, but try to understand and, and walk in their shoes. So you know, I say get out of your comfort zone, um, because everything uncomfortable becomes eventually comfortable. But one of my, my one of my last phrases here I'll leave you with is while I was studying Mandarin, um, in Hong Kong. And I was always asking, you know, how do you say go for it or just do it? And their phrase is, um, which means add oil or refill oil, make a greater effort, cheer up. And I love that. I think, You know, I mean, when we say go for it, we're not literally saying add oil or add gas. But that's how it's said in Chinese.
0: Isn't that great? Yeah,
1: it's fun. It's fun.
0: (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that that makes that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that is such a rare opportunity to, you know, to work alongside so many different folks, you know, making things happen. Thinking about the shifts on the demand side of the business you know, we were talking about the shifts in category emphasis and how that's, that's become such a moving target. But also just this acceleration where social media is driving fashion, for example, and it creates this immediacy and it forces retailers to really turn on a dime, you know, they can plan inventory months in advance, and then something goes viral and they're, you know, left high and dry, they didn't prepare for it. And then you've got the rise in digital commerce, which of course is only accelerated during the COVID crisis and, you know, same day deliveries and all of this acceleration and also an acceleration and expectation. But with all of that at work, do you think that the, the model, the traditional model of those longer lead times and uh, even inventory planning as we know it, are those relics of the past?
1: Um, no, I don't believe they're relics of the past. I believe they will evolve and change. Uh, because there is still a relevant uh, node in the supply chain. Your long lead times depends on your sourcing strategy balance and your product categories. So for instance, you know, there's basic items, basic product categories that we can't make here in the U.S. um, because we don't have the, the large factories anymore. So those aren't the product categories to concentrate on. I think we'll talk a little bit more about domestic manufacturing in a minute but inventory planning really has just experienced a meteor hit or earthquake or tsunami because how do you plan for demand when you can't get the supply, factories are shut down? How do you plan for demand uh, when people are in lockdown and only a few retailers are considered essential to be open? And then how do you plan for consumer that is now buying product that usually isn't bought until later in the year historically? So um, for instance, bikes and trampolines, mainly they're bought around Christmas time for gifts. So will that consumer still buy that product later in the year? Um, so, and as I mentioned, the backpacks, um, you know, there, there could be an abundance of inventory of, of backpacks because some are already on order. So are we going to have to mothball, you know, some of the, the backpacks? So, you know, aside from, from the health impact inventory and really getting that supply and demand back in sync, is going to be one of the greatest impacts of of the pandemic that we're going to, you know, continue to see, I think, really into the next year and a half.
0: Well, when you mentioned you use the term mothball, and that's been coming up lately, what do you think about uh, the strategy that some retailers are considering in the apparel space of literally mothballing this some inventory and saying, you know what, Uh, demand wasn't there right now. So we're just going to pack it up and bring it back next year.
1: Yeah, I think uh I think it's really actually kind of dangerous because um after a year is sitting in and you don't know where it's sitting. Is it sitting in a humid condition? You know, could there be mold that grows on that? Um, could there be a deterioration of some of the yarns or the fabric? Um I w- I think you would have to do a hundred percent a QA inspection, you know, before you could ever send it to your stores to resell it. So while it may not be the right season, it's not going to be the right color if that's how you designate it as well next year, but I think there becomes a lot more um, downsides to keeping that rather than trying to sell it and move it and get rid of it.
0: It sounds like you might need to literally put mothballs in it, at least, <laughs> <laughs> right?
1: Exactly <laughs> to avoid
0: some. Well, that, that's interesting, though. I um, I don't think that's been talked about a lot. Is the fact that you need to, if you're going to pursue a strategy like that, you have to think it all the way through, what that looks like, and have all the inspections and all that in place and ready to go. So when we talked about, um, we alluded to it just a minute ago, and I want to drill down on this domestic manufacturing conversation that's another topic that ebbs and flows throughout retail um, especially as this immediacy and this acceleration of time frames becomes a constant is domestic manufacturing still in the mix and particularly when you throw in some of the you know the new variables and disruption you know the trade threats the trade deals uh, just seeming to come out of nowhere and you know causing these little mini quakes. And uh, you know, manufacturing organizations and with retailers, what do you think about domestic manufacturing at this point?
1: Um, yeah, I think nearshoring or reshoring have become hotter topics to talk about uh, really over the last two years. Um, but when we think of a domestic manufacturing, kind of three things come to mind: how you have to create a local footprint and really um, become important to those vendors and yarn spinners and fabric mills that are still here. Um, and shift to shift to a more on-demand manufacturing. So that becomes a different business model for you um, of keeping fabric maybe on hand and then designing closer to um, the sales aspect of it. And the third thing is really looking at the trends um, moving towards specialization, personalization, uh, customization. So, um, but manufacturing relocation doesn't happen overnight. And if we look at globalization, you know, that's kind of been on the loose since the 1960s, um, you know, it's, it's, um, really looking at the, um, survival of raw materials in are key to making a product. So all raw materials are not existent, you know, in all countries, but with technology, as long as the company has raw materials, some of that production can be brought back to the U S but it will take Uh, Take re-engineering of the product, the processes, the supply chains, the internal organizational structures, you know, new business models, but um, all of this will depend as well on the consumer and how the consumer will react to paying for a made in USA product. So a made in USA product may be more expensive, may or may not be more expensive, but you really have to engineer that product um, and it can be done but you really have to work with your partners and your stakeholders and the external stakeholders in the supply chain to really help engineer that to make it affordable. So mass produced products, you know, apparel, t-shirts, I mean, they're gonna stay in foreign, foreign countries, but the apparel industry has been looking at more nearshoring uh, into Central America. Um, but I wanted to share just a little bit on legislation and then some things that I see happening um, within uh, like California. So, yeah, recently, um, U.S. lawmakers have been drafting these proposals, um, and a lot because of the PPE um, environment that we just experienced, but to drive American companies out of China by incentivizing them to uproot, you know, the supply chains and take these tax breaks and subsidies. So, you know, this ebbs and flows from day to day, but the latest that I had was that government officials are really looking at considering $25 billion in a reshoring fund, to sway these businesses to bring some of that supply chain home. And that could be some apparel, that could be pharmaceuticals, that could be PPE. I mean, it could be we'll have to wait till we get the final legislation. But Senator Cory Booker, you know, was reintroducing reintroducing the Scale-Up Manufacturing Investment Company Act, which would give U.S. entrepreneurs access to capital to help them grow and commercialize more advanced manufacturing operations. And so still kind of keeping an eye on that, that would be administered to the Small Business Administration. But if we look at state and city legislation, uh, there's an initiative right now in Los Angeles to grow the LA manufacturing industry called LA Made. And it's through um, one of the the stakeholders is UCLA, Clean Energy Smart Manufacturing Innovation Institute. And they have a, a private public partnership that focuses specifically on smart manufacturing and a, a workforce retraining um, to add these additional skills that would be needed uh, for trainees to work in these technologies to transform the manufacturing. So if we look at some of that type of thing that, that is taking place, um, I'd like to give an example of a, of a company that, that is doing this, a brand that's doing this, and it's called Epix Gear, E-P-I-X. And they've been manufacturing custom cycling gear and performance apparel um, in China since their company's launch in 2009. But last year they moved their manufacturing operations to Tempe, Arizona. And while the company still manufactures a small percentage in China, um, they expect that by August of this year they'll have 100% in the U.S. So what has that done? That is really looking at um, now no shipping costs, the ocean freight. Um, they've expanded the line to include more performance gear and they've slashed their production lead time by two weeks, um, even during the pandemic. And so when you look at that manufacturer being able to scale up some orders, I mean, they won't be making 100,000 pieces, but they have the ability now to customize these products and have small volumes, um, which enabled them to move to the US. And so when we start looking at companies um, and I look at some of the large vendors I've worked with over the years that have production in Africa, you know production in Bangladesh, Cambodia, Vietnam, China. Well, what happens if they would create a advanced manufacturing for some aspect of their product and be able to offer this to their customers? I think it'd be revolutionary. I think it would be really um, something, and then it continues to create jobs here. And it continues to advance our manufacturing uh, capabilities here in the US.
0: Well, it's clearly, though, not just a flipping of a light switch. I mean, there's, it's, uh, I think sometimes it's portrayed too simplistically that, oh, yeah, you know, just make it in the USA. But there's uh, so many variables and so many things to take into consideration. But uh, that's a really interesting case study. And I I think you need those case studies to embolden others uh, to try new things.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You need someone that is out there um, being the catalyst and um, invigorating other people to to go and try it.
0: Well one thing uh, I was talking about these variables and all of these uh, moving parts you know one term that you used in one of your talks that I just loved is you talked about the uh, use sort of a metaphor of a caravan and talking about, you know, I, I remember when the goal, you know, in manufacturing was to forge these longer term relationships with factories, or even to own them, and to uh, have that consistency uh, with with certain suppliers. But now it seems like all of that's becoming the sourcing world has become so opportunistic. And again, I love your your, your term, the caravan, you know, the image of just constantly packing up and moving on, particularly... With these new variables that have come into play with COVID, but what do you think about that? Is that is that uh, treacherous territory? Does that compromise quality or consistency? Is it just the nature of the game, or are there any advantages to you know this caravan model of constant opportunistic sourcing?
1: Yeah, the caravan. Um, I feel like I've been on that caravan most of my career, um, <laughs> <laughs> moving from country to country and. Um, you know, I'll never forget when in the in the start of my career, I would go to Hong Kong and work with knitting knitters there to, to make sweaters. And then, you know, Hong Kong became too expensive and um, it would started to move into China. And you see Taiwan manufacturers that eventually were allowed to invest in Chinese factories. Um, and... You know now as as things become more expensive in China to move on to Vietnam, which happened you know probably starting about at least ten years ago, um, but into Cambodia and Bangladesh and really the last um, stakeholders I'll say in in Asia um, that would be cost effective if you want to look at low cost country sourcing would be Myanmar and Laos. And Laos really doesn't have any, any raw materials or, um, it does not have too many people, uh, to be employed in a factory. But there are some garment factories that have popped up there, um, that are being successful. So, so Myanmar is really the last, um, market that, that we know of, I'll say, in, in Asia. Um, you will continue to see India, um, India thrive because India is so large. Um, but even India has moved from some of that low cost sourcing, um, in, in key areas, the large cities. You really have to get down into the tier three cities, um, or villages, you know, to find, to find more of that. But as you move, you also find, um, a factory compliance risk and a lot of social and security risks, uh, within the supply chain. So not only are you compromising potential quality going and moving, and consistency, but you also have what I call the foundation of, of really that that factory compliance, human rights issues, and um, social issues. So, but the consumer is the one; it's our customer <laughs> um, that continues to put cost pressure. And so, as the price of apparel uh, in the U.S. continues to at least maintain or go down, you know, customers expect to purchase a good quality product and an in- inexpensive cost. So this has created that pressure on the upstream apparel supply chain to continue to be in that caravan and to continue to move from country to country.
0: But at the same time, you know, there's this this push, too, on the consumer side. They want to have it all uh, for uh, this radical transparency, too, in terms of sourcing. Where was this made? What were the conditions, the social responsibility? So are those all at, at odds with one another?
1: Uh, they can be at odds with one another. Um, you really have to... Uh, engineer your supply chain to um, to meet all the the customer um, and regulatory uh, and human rights uh, requirements. So so for instance on on cost, let's say you may be able to go and get an FOB a first cost reduction for five cents, but when you're looking at building that landed cost of what it takes to get the gar- get the garment, let's say here, meaning the ocean carrier or if you have to air freight it. Um, and bringing it through U.S. customs and um, other material costs in moving just raw materials to another country, that all adds up. And if you eventually look at it, is it still as cost competitive um, versus trying to find something closer maybe in this hemisphere? So you also have to look at you know, new ports that you have to move through. And you know there's a variety of things, but yes, um, it, it can, you, you may find a really good factory that has a great price, but they can't pass the social audits, you know, of, of let's say a third party auditor company that you may have uh, do that type of thing. And, you know, at that point, a brand really has to say, I have zero tolerance and, um, you know, to to make sure that the, the, the product is made um, with ethical sourcing.
0: Yeah, that's a, 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 a lot of demands to manage. And you can't just take a, a short term approach to it. Absolutely. And before you alluded to we we touched on the circular economy and, you know, tying into sustainability, and that's not going away anytime soon. In fact, I, you know, from what I've seen, it's gone beyond just, you know, being PR and checking boxes and window dressing, and into pushing further down into the supply chain and going back to this expectation of transparency and the ability even to have that transparency and track uh, what's happening. So what are your thoughts on what I call sustainability second act? And, you know, where is it going next? And uh, what are the, even the challenges to that, to that uh, goal? I think that most retailers and many manufacturers have, uh, even during the COVID crisis.
1: Yes. I think, um, I think the COVID crisis will accelerate this, um, request from the consumer to have more sustainable product. And as you look at, uh, there's an, a brand, there's a, uh, online brand called a day, um, and it's a women's apparel brand and they have gone away from the seasons and what they produce is they, they preach minimalization, um, and sustainability. And so when you look at that, um, companies will have to put more emphasis on sustainable product and if we look at um, I was looking at um, you know when you look at stock prices uh, for public companies um, investment from um, private equity or um, other investors are really going to be requiring a lot more investment for companies in this environmental social and and governmental standard. so um, you know, when you look at sustainability strategies, it could be a determining factor on who secures capital and, and who doesn't. And recently I came across um a a company that I've, I've known in the software industry, but I like this new vein that they've really gone down. And it has it has created a software for implementing a sustainable supply chain and because it is a completely different supply chain from from the fibers um all the way to the fabric you know to how you have uh carbon emissions and hazardous chemicals um and your wastewater treatment let's say at plants i mean all of this that goes into your sourcing and distribution strategy to minimize your carbon footprint um to promote the circularity so that's really interesting to um to see that uh, a specific software for uh, sustainability.
0: Yeah, especially, especially when, you know, I talk about buy builder bridge, and it being the big decision that retailers have to make these days, whether to acquire resources, whether to, whether to build them internally, or to partner with others. And when you talk about things like software solutions, you know, it takes a willingness on retailers part, I think, to acknowledge what they can do well internally, and what they would be better off um, partnering with to make happen and sustainability, you know, it's good to know that there are solutions out there that that are going deeper into that sustainability piece and and helping retailers go beyond just checking the boxes.
1: Absolutely, and you know, I think your word there and partnerships. Um, there's many universities doing research in this sustainable uh, space. And while I was in Hong Kong, Hong Kong Research in Textiles and Apparel, Hong Kong Rita, which is part of uh, Polytech University there, has created this garment-to-garment, G-to-G, you know, again, a new business model to to test this pilot for circularity. So basically, you bring in an old sweater and they break down the fibers, create new fibers, knit it, and you have a a new ready-to-wear sweater. So is this our future, you know, of what we want to look at? Um, and then, as I mentioned with the, um, with the stock price, um, the, how you build a sustainability program and how you write your report go hand in hand. And so while I was in Hong Kong, I had an opportunity to attend one of the GMI, one of the, the, um, report standards, um, a seminar. And it was very interesting to see how based on on that writing, how you could really, you know, if companies are thinking, how could I start a sustainability program? Well, take the report format and then slowly build your sustainability program. uh, From there.
0: I think it's about finding the way that works best for a particular company rather than thinking there's only one way you can do it.
1: Yes, absolutely. There are numerous ways to, to approach this.
0: Yeah. And I know that's something that you address in your business. So let me ask you, you've mentioned some really great case studies and some uh, innovative companies that you're following. And uh, thank you for, for providing those. I'm definitely going to be looking them up. Is there, what are you particularly excited about in general, just in terms of uh, developments in the supply chain, innovations, tools?
1: Wow. I tell you, um, you know, when you, when people are like, oh, apparel industry, you know, it's. Um, it's a foregone industry, <laughs> no way. It's There's so much to be excited about um, and when you look at some of the innovations uh, that have taken place in the U.S. and Central America just with the PPE, um, you know, the uh, America's Apparel Producers Network, AAPN, uh, created a sourcing uh, center chat on their website and they had over thousands of participants that came out of the woodwork, I'll say, that each had a piece of the, a product or part of the supply chain, you know, to help create that product. And so these pieces were connected through that network to, to make that product. And so a recent uh, webinar that I moderated um, with the speakers, uh, Mike Teodero and Ed Gribben, um, you know, really emphasized how this all came, came to play. And if you look at, you know, a couple companies, Under Armour and Lion Brothers are, um, you know, one of the, the many companies that really designed a mask. Uh, Under Armour designed one, I believe also Lime Brothers, that you didn't have to sew. Um, It was kind of an origami type of mask um, and turned production centers into mask making. So I think this is a great example of we should be able to take other problems of the industry, create a center chat, I'll call it, and um, help revive some of the, the U.S. industry. I mean, we'll never see the large sewing factories again, but we can drive innovation, um, which is some of that customization and personalization um, that we'll see. But some other supply chain innovations uh, I'm excited about are the robotics. So robotics, AI, and sustainability. But there are companies that are specifically looking at robotics on can we make garments here in the US again? And while cutting has been automated for a long time, it's been the sewing factor that hasn't been. So there's a company, software uh, W E A R automation, um, that out of Atlanta, Georgia, that is um, is expounding and and, and expanding uh, in this area. Uh, a couple of other companies, Soft Robotics, Hanson Robotics, Toontex is a factory in Jakarta, Indonesia, that um, has have worked on automating the sewing process. So I think that's I think we're on the, the, the cutting edge of, of being able to look at some of these types of things and and um and and accelerate them here uh in the US. And and then I mentioned the garment to garment. I think that's another aspect that um is very interesting that brings brands together that work in a platform economy. So instead of competing against themselves, um they're really working on a platform and working together. Uh, to create a new biodegradable fiber or, you know, whatever uh, the project is that they're working on. So all these different business models in that case, um, you know, is, is emerging.
0: You know, I'm a big believer too that apparel is by no means dead. And it is interesting, you know, the fashion business throughout time, fashion or apparel has always driven innovation and, you know, other categories have always borrowed from apparel. So I think that's, you know, I love your point that it's not going to be about apparel business going away or fashion business going away. It's just going to be different. And I'm glad to see that there's so much innovation still happening there because I think it continued can continue to be very influential to the industry as a whole. So, well, I end every voices of uh, retail next interview with one question, and I'm going to pose it to you to answer any way you see fit. And that is what's next.
1: Well, uh, while this pandemic has had uh, has been tragic in so many ways, uh, affecting so many people, whether it's health or uh, economic or income or other ways, um, if we can try to find a silver lining out of it from a from a business aspect, um, it will change the way many things are done. And so, if we look at this disruption, which has created and will create shifts in this innovation or out of the box thinking and collaboration um, that would have never been dreamed of, let's say in the past. So based on our talk today, um, there are three supply chain shifts that retailers and brands must focus on that we've talked about. So that regulatory, migratory sourcing, your know, supply chain design and business model and technology shift. And so, as you mentioned, um, kind of what's next then for, for my company is really to taking these shifts and um, one of the things we're gonna be concentrating on is, is designing this foresight looking supply risk management program. So really looking at global scenario planning for continued monitoring of trends and um, really being able to, to play out more of these scenarios so that we're better, um, better um, in, in place, we have things in place for the next, um, the next you know, pandemic or the next big uh, event. Um, and I think that's one of the key things is that companies will also come out of this with a more robust supply chain uh, risk management program. Um, we'll also concentrate on uh, sustainability reporting, uh, but also more of that cross-functional training and really help the industry to um, understand across all the different stakeholders, internal and external Um, what what can be done and and what people do so I'm very optimistic about the industry and you know what a network recently showed that can be done just in PPE Um, so for uh, so for those builders and creators, Jaiyo, add oil.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you. That's really great. And, um, you know, obviously, you, we can look at this time as just the ultimate stress test. You know, that's what I've been encouraging folks to think of it as. And um, I love to speak with fellow optimists who think that things are going to be much more innovative and interesting and efficient on the other side. And I know you're working toward making that happen. So I really appreciate you joining us, Lynn, and um, it was such a great conversation and just having the opportunity to dig deeper into the underp- underpinnings that make retail happen and getting your thoughts on it and an often overlooked uh, aspect of retail right now as as everybody's just seems to be scrambling and make, trying to make predictions and uh, figure out where all this is going. So thank you so much for your time and your insights, Lynn, and uh, for joining Speakerman Speaks Retail today.
1: Absolutely, Carol, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to join you today. And it was my pleasure and
0: honor. Great, thank you. Well, if you want to reach out to Lynn, her email address, which she has uh, uh, given for, for you guys to contact her, she's very open to communication, is L Sprugel, S P R U G E L, at abuzzglobal.com, as in a buzzing bee. And in the show notes, you will see a lecture, uh, a, a link to a lecture that Lynn participated in with even more great information on supply chain shifts and her perspective on that. And on that note, we're going to wrap up this episode of Speakerman Speaks Retail from Market Scale. And in future episodes, I'm going to be talking with more smart folks who will help us understand all aspects of what's happening in retail. And yes, we'll keep on tracking those trajectories. So I hope that you'll listen, listen in every other Thursday. Our next episode is going to break on July 16th. And feel free to share it on social media and to share this episode on social media as well. Uh, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I am Retail Expert, X-P-E-R-T. So thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.